Hello and welcome to Mountain Meister. It's the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I'm your host, Ben Shank. My guest today is Scott Johnston, who's the co-owner and the head coach of Uphill Athlete. Uphill Athlete is a specialized training platform that now includes a couple of books, a website with a host of resources and training plans, stories, articles, and it also offers personalized coaching for uphill athletes. Um, we coach athletes in a variety of mountain sports, primarily climbing, alpinism, mountaineering, ski mountaineering, and mountain running. On today's show, Scott and I will talk about his newest book with Steve House and Killian Jornet. It's called Training for the New Alpinism, a manual for mountain runners and ski mountaineers. In the book, they set the record straight on what works, what doesn't work, and what is known and unknown in endurance training. Also later in today's episode, he'll give me and you some advice about how to get faster and go further in your endurance pursuits. After Scott's interview, our company spotlight is with Reggie. Reggie is not a person, but it's a brand of cycling apparel that uses an incredible range of colors and designs. I'll speak with Reggie's co-founders and siblings, Laura and Jeff Wills. I'll talk to them about the company. Then Hannah Van Wetter and I will review one of their cycling kits. Mountain Meister is supported by The Nomadic. It's a subscription box curated by outdoor enthusiasts for outdoor enthusiasts. Each month, you'll get a hand-picked selection of the latest and greatest outdoor products that were all trip-tested by the Nomadic product team. That's a collection of outdoor guides, professional athletes, and bona fide adventurers. There's a new theme every month, and inside, it's packed with freshly launched gear from well-known outdoor brands like Empowered, Grand Trunk, RX Bar, Scratch Labs, and more. There's also an outdoor challenge to match. Discover the new gear from the brands you can trust delivered to your doorstep monthly. Go to thenomadic.com slash meister. That's the N-O-M-A-D-I-K dot com slash meister. And use the code meister for 20% off your first purchase. Not sure how long they're going to run this for. So if you're interested, check it out today. Now on to my interview with Scott Johnston of Uphill Athlete. So as a, a podcast host that interviews outdoor elite athletes, oftentimes people ask me if I participate in the sports uh, of the people that I interview. And my answer is for the most part, no. But I assume you as a coach participate in these sports like uh, ultra running or uh, ski mountaineering. Yes. Although my I'm old enough now at 65 years old that my uh, competitive days and competitive spirit is long since waned and um, but I have been a lifelong athlete and in a couple of sports at, at quite a high level so I have been able to combine that experience um, over the past 45 years I would say roughly maybe more of um, being an athlete and coaching to be able to bring some of these ideas to the forefront so that other people don't have to make a lot of the same mistakes that often get made when you're trying to coach yourself or learn as you go. Uh, so are, are you training for anything uh, personally at this point? 
No, I, I, I exercise a lot and I do a lot of, you know, skiing and climbing and running in the mountains and that sort of thing, but I don't have any particular goals other than to you know, just maintain my health at, at my age. 30 years ago, I pretty much wrapped up my competition career. Um, so you mentioned, uh, some of the mistakes that you've made and obviously, uh, the training for these sorts of disciplines has evolved quite a bit over time. Uh, so could you maybe talk about like the state of knowledge when you were uh, competing at a high level in this sport and then how things have changed? Sure. Um, well, I was fortunate because I was competing at a national and international level with some very high level coaches that back in the 70s and, and 80s that I was able to learn a great deal from some of these coaches. Um, but it also, during that period, brought up almost more questions than I got answers for, and which spurred my curiosity to become more of a student of the sport. But I, I yeah, the technology, or excuse me, not the technology, but the knowledge base for training for endurance has improved or expanded, I would say, not necessarily improved, but it has been expanded greatly. There, I mean, obviously the internet has done a lot to disseminate information that used to be rather, if not guarded, closely held um, knowledge that only, you know, for a few select coaches would have this knowledge because of the communication systems weren't quite as, as good as they are now. I mean, I've participated in quite a number of coaching conferences for different sports over the years, and that's where a lot of information gets exchanged, and we get to hear about ideas that work and don't work. And um, But we nowadays, a lot of that information is available to the lay public, which I think is a tremendous thing. Um, but unfortunately, uh, there's also a tremendous amount of misinformation because of the because of the internet, or uh, that the lay public is exposed to a lot of really shabby information when it, especially when it comes to training for endurance. So one of the purposes that Killian and Steve and I had with this book was to try to sort of set the record straight and give this information that you know elite coaches have understood for decades and used successfully. And give it to the the public so that it's in a digestible form. So it's interesting you mentioned the uh, mistakes and and what gets published because there's some interesting research about how uh, we have difficulty unhearing things. So uh, you hear false sure. information, yeah. but you can't really forget that the damage has already been done. And a funny example is there's a podcast called Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Have you ever listened to it? Yeah, I have heard of it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so do you know the segment of the show where they uh, – where they talk about like there are two fake stories and then one true story and the person has to guess the real story. But then maybe one week later you remember all three stories, but you can't remember which one's real. <laughs> ah, that's very interesting. Yeah. 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 What mistakes did you make early on in the career? You have this great quote at the beginning of the book. Uh, you said we know from painful firsthand experience just about just as much about how not to train effectively as we have about how to train effectively. Sure. And I think in a way that's more, more important for most athletes is to know how to avoid the pitfalls and um, the, the real you know, disastrous situations that sometimes arise in training. And the only way you can really know that is to live it and live it both as an athlete and as a coach. So 
Killian tells a great story about in the book about his overtraining himself. I mean, he's largely self-coached, even though he's he's had coaches in the past, but he managed to get himself overtrained at one point. And I think that's probably certainly from my own personal experience, both as an athlete and as a coach, the overtraining problem, uh, which is an enormous one in endurance sports and especially in ultra endurance type sports. Um, where you have these type A personalities that understand that up to a point more is better, but at the point where all of a sudden more is not better, it can become, you know, what used to be enough is now way too much. And overtraining is a very poorly understood phenomenon. I've written extensively about it on the website, and there's quite a section in the book on it that I've had to deal with quite a few overtrained athletes. I overtrained myself in 1987 severely, and it cost me a spot on an Olympic team. So I, I've dealt with it at a very deep personal level, and I've subsequently, over the last 25, 30 years as a coach, have dealt with it um, with a number of athletes. And it's perhaps one of the most traumatic um, events that can happen with an athlete, both psychologically and emotionally, as well as physically, because these athletes that are training at a really high level, they're fully committed to this. This is their life. And if the wheels come off and they become overtrained, not just their performance is going to drop off, which of course is goes hand in hand with overtraining, but there's a huge amount of psychological damage that can be done during that period because overtraining is not something to be it's that can be taken lightly and and it can completely end an athlete's career. Um, at best, you might lose you know several weeks four to six weeks minimum, and you can easily lose four to six months with a bout of overtraining. So it's an area that is uh, fraught with this potential for all this damage. And I think that in my personal experience, I think what Killian is alluding to in that article that he wrote about his overtraining experience, those are tremendously important learning experiences for, especially for a coach to go through, because then you, you go, whoa, we don't want to go anywhere near that again. Um, and how do we avoid those things? And then it brings up all these subjects about how do we monitor the athletes so that we know that we're not going into that area. And the book goes into some great detail about methods for monitoring and controlling training loads and making sure the athlete is is, um, absorbing the training. That must be difficult as a coach because you kind of want to bend the person so far but not break them. And so as as a coach, you must be kind of uh you have to be risky but you also are risk averse because if you do break the athlete then you might not be getting uh any more work (laughs) that's exactly right and you know up so in endurance sports i mean the way you make progress is by getting making yourself tired essentially um you go out and do these extensive and sometimes intensive workouts with the sole purpose of fatiguing yourself because that fatigue depending on the what, the type of fatigue and the system you're using uh, or the system you're fatiguing is what results in the adaptations that give you the positive training effect and make you fitter for the next session or down the road months from now. And so it's the application of this fatigue that um, is the main stimulus for these athletes to improve. However, there's a, there's a line there 
that is sometimes a little hard to define is these athletes, endurance athletes in general are always fatigued. They are in a state of chronic fatigue, especially during the initial base building period, because again, that's what causes the stimulus to improve. But there's a certain type of fatigue that's um, manageable and absorbable by the body. But once you exceed that, then you get into this overtraining state that not isn't just a fatigue like you know what fatigue is when you're tired and you rest a couple of days and you bounce back. This is a fatigue that you rest a few days and you don't bounce back. And then you rest a few more days and you still don't bounce back. And it's much more of a medical condition. Um, although, again, it's very poorly understood exactly the mechanisms. There are multiple mechanisms that cause it. So this monitoring state, this monitoring component for both the coach and the athlete can is a vital part to know how close you are to that line where you're, you know, as you say, you need to bend the athlete and put a lot of pressure on them. But if you break them, uh, it can be disastrous. Can, can you achieve uh, fatigue through different means such as uh, like not getting enough sleep and fatigue the athlete that way to an effective in an effective manner? Not a training effective manner. No. Okay. I mean, the, the, you're right, though, that, you know, there are this this um, the training stress that we apply to the body through the workouts that we do those each one of those types of stresses that we apply physiologically has starts a, a set of sort of a uh, cascade of, of events that end up at the very lowest level in some genetic signaling taking place that causes new proteins to be formed and as a consequence the body becomes more able to handle whatever that specific stress was. But this, there's also, you know, this life stresses, whether it's related to poor sleep, um, you know, family stress, uh, school stress, all those types of things. And interestingly enough, um, Hans Selye, who is kind of did the most of the early work on stress and how humans adapt to it, discovered that regardless of the form of stress, the one of the principal endocrine system um, responses is to increase cortisol levels in the body. So you have a fight with your girlfriend or you do a hard interval session and both of those things are going to elevate the cortisol levels. But if you have a fight with your girlfriend on the same day that you're doing this hard interval session, now those cortisol levels can get to dangerous levels to the point where you can have maladaptation, you don't recover well. Um, so it, that balance of the stress is really important. But yes, stresses like lack of sleep is not going to help you from your training okay. in a training way. In fact, it's the opposite because stress is, or excuse me, sleep is the most important time when the body repairs itself mm -hmm. from the stresses of the day, um, all the stresses of the day, but especially regarding uh, training stress. You make it clear from the onset of the book that there's no clear recipe for what will work for a person. Uh, and you made a cookbook analogy. Can you tell us why the book is not a cookbook? Yes, um, because individuality plays a huge role. <clears throat> and, and while we, while all humans say, share the same general responses to different types of training, <clears throat> excuse me, and we, we understand those things, which is a lot, what allows us to build this methodological framework for training. But there's enough individual variation in the responses that 
we have to understand how what we want to target what are we trying to accomplish with this particular training session that we're doing and how will that benefit or affect the athlete and that the reason there are these individual variations even though we're all the same species is that genetics certainly play a role um you know one very very simple way you've probably heard this term that some athletes are more endowed towards fast twitch muscle fibers and others more towards slow twitch that is a genetic predisposition and those two general categories of athletes respond very differently to different training inputs then there's also the the age children are going to respond entirely different than adults are Um, beginners are going to respond worse than or or different than people who have had a different longer training history people in their middle age and older are going to have a very different training response than someone in their 20s or 30s and so understanding these individual variations and trying to what we did in the book was rather than you don't open this book and just find a whole series of different training plans for different types of events. The book is intended to be educational and allow a person to do some heavy lifting, roll up their sleeves and get into this. If they want to optimize their own performance, it allows them to sort of categorize themselves into different areas, whether it's fast twitch, slow twitch, age, training, training history, all that kind of stuff, so that you can decide, okay, in general, this is the type of training that I need or that I need now so that I can segue into um, or excuse me, progress into some different types of training later on. And I feel like what one of the mistakes that has been <clears throat> kind of um, passed on to the lay public is that they should be training like world champions. Mm-hmm. And that we'll see, you know, whether it's on YouTube or in the magazine, you'll see some incredible athletic performance or you'll, you'll read about some guy who just ran a 203 marathon and you'll read about the last three months of his training and people will be encouraged to copy that training as if that was what made that athlete able to run that 203 marathon. When in fact, it's the 15 plus years that guy has spent getting ready to do those types of workouts that that were really the key part. Those last three months, that's this frosting on the cake. That isn't really the important stuff. Yes, it it helped him perhaps drop from a you know a 204 to a 203 in his marathon, but it was all those years. It's sort of you I'm sure you're familiar with that sort of that concept of the 10,000 hour concept. And that base of training is enormously important and yet it often is glossed over in the popular press because in our current day and the mindset of many people is they were looking for a silver bullet or, you know, a quick fix, or I want to run my best marathon in six weeks, you know, that kind of stuff. And unfortunately, our, the evolutionary processes that have created the human species the way they are don't work that way. These training adaptations take months and months and years and years to fully uh, uh, be accomplished. And there's no way that you can shortcut that. We just don't do that. Physiologically, it's not possible. And I feel like that has been a tremendous, that's one of those areas where the public has been very poorly served in the past with these notions that you can achieve 
these phenomenal performances, but you don't have to spend that much time. I, I don't blame us for making that mistake. Though. I, yeah. like, I, I don't even I don't think that we're ever not going to make that mistake because we have such a difficult no. time dealing with uncertainty. And, and so, it's so appealing. It is. It's so appealing uh, I mean, to be if, told that you can take this pill or you can do right. these, this workout three times a week for 15 minutes and you're going to run your best race. But the evidence is clear that that's not the case. And, and if you need the evidence, all you have to do is look at what the, the, the elite athletes do. And none of them train that way because it doesn't work. And I mean, it, it, if you're a recreational person or you're just interested in fitness, then there are myriad pathways you can mm. choose to accomplish that level of fitness. But if you're an athlete looking to optimize your performance, there's really a very narrow path that needs to be followed in order to in, in endurance sports. And it's pretty well understood. It has been for decades. I was trying to think, uh, like, imagine how unsatisfying a cookbook would be that said like you know like this maybe is going to make it better or you could do it this way or i don't know add some more add some less we're not really sure what's going to happen you kind of have to figure out what works that would be <laughs> that yeah. would be so unpopular so it's like yeah uh duh like people love these quick fix training things like that's just sure. what we like we like a clear story exactly yeah we want i mean what I think of with a, what a training plan, when you eventually come to the point where you're writing a training plan, it looks so concrete and it looks like a perfect roadmap to get you from point A to point B. But the difficulty is that things happen uh, between point A and point B. You don't, you know, things don't go perfectly. Yes, there's that fight with your girlfriend or you're studying for finals or you're having a, a really stressful work period uh, in your professional life or something like that, those things will upset your ability to handle the training and to respond to it. And it, those need to be accommodated for, you know, blindly following a training plan is one of the worst ideas out there. I don't care who writes a training plan, no training plan can be blindly adhered to unless you're willing to just hope that it will work. And so what we stress in our book is, you know, developing ways of getting the feedback, like, okay, is this working or is it not working? How do I adjust it when it doesn't work? What do I do when I miss a few days because I'm sick or the, the real world situation? And so what ends up happening in, for a, a professional athlete or even a serious amateur is the training plan is a suggestion. Like this would be what would be ideal and optimal world if you were a robot and we knew that every you know input of a would equal an output of b if we actually knew that worked then this training plan wouldn't need any there would be no art to it but the art of coaching is understanding that this is really just a suggestion and that we're going to be have to be on our toes and the coach's job is to be monitoring the athlete seeing how they're responding and then adjusting the plan as it goes forward uh the book's broken up with these various athlete stories you mentioned uh one from killian there's another one that i liked uh that began uh i have run 18 100 mile races at this point and i have thrown up during every single one uh, <laughs> yeah. can you can you highlight one of your favorite athlete stories well honestly no and the reason for that is i'm not trying to be elusive <laughs> but what we hoped with these athlete stories very much like we use these same athlete stories in our first book, which was training for the new alpinism that Steve House and I wrote together a few years back. 
what we hoped with these stories is not only to break up the the sort of the dry textbook nature of a lot of the material that's in the book, but to offer some inspiration, of course. We want to inspire people to to go out there and do these things. But also the you know, this is a these things that we do in the mountains. Um we do them for different reasons. We do them uh, under different conditions. We all have different experiences with them. And the complexity of this sort of web of human experience in these mountain sports, we wanted to demonstrate that with these all these different voices that are going to come at it from with their own unique perspective. And I feel like each one of those stories brings something different to the book um, because it's they're they're all completely unscripted. And we just ask these people, we want to hear a story from you. So I feel like I, I don't really have, but there's a couple of them that I can that resonate a little bit with me because they're athletes that I've coached. So that's perhaps easier for me to to uh, you know relate to. But I feel like each one of them has something unique to say. Fair answer. So you mentioned the maybe like the textbook nature of the book. Um, I I'm very much an amateur recreational athlete, uh, so at times there is like a little bit too much information for me. I have to admit, for those who are extraordinarily specialized, it's uh, you can get very in depth in the material here. One interesting uh, segment that I found was. You commented on how each party has kind of like a role in uh, figuring out what works. So you talked about like how the coaches can kind of use a trial and error. And then obviously like the athlete is the guinea pig. But then there's also the researchers who are engaged in more of like a controlled environment. So can you talk about like the, the learning process of figuring out what works using all these parties? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think it's quite a fascinating thing because we have the science in science in exercise science has progressed a lot in the last 50 years or so. We understand a lot of what's going on physiologically. But out on the front lines or out on the what I would consider really the cutting edge of what's going on with athletes, we have tens, if not hundreds of thousands of coaches working with literally millions of guinea pigs every day. And they are working in the ultimate laboratory. And that's a laboratory that's measured with a stopwatch on the competitive field. So they're getting immediate feedback about what works and what doesn't with their training. And when you combine all of that empirical information that's generated with coaches and athletes trying different ideas and you do that over decades, eventually the cream flows to the top. Um, the good ideas are glommed onto and they get spread around and used and some of them get modified. The bad ideas either get completely discarded or they get modified and maybe tried again in a slightly different form. But eventually you're going to end up with a fairly good consensus among these coaches and understanding with the athletes of what works to produce these the best types of results. And something that a lot of people don't understand is that training for endurance is very, very simple, or excuse me, very, very similar across the a broad range of, of all the endurance sports. Anything longer than about two minutes has the same 
physiological demands. I don't care if you're rowing a shell or running up a mountain or skiing or whatever it is, the, the, the physiological demands are essentially the same. Wow, that's amazing. Two minutes. Yeah, two, anything longer than about two minutes is dominated by the aerobic metabolic processes. So we think of you know, an event, you know, these endurance. You know, so we'll, let's say a, 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 even a three thousand meter running race is predominantly an aerobic event. You know, uh, the eight hundred meter for a world class person, which is well under two minutes, doesn't really qualify. But most of the kinds of things that we're addressing in our book are multi hour events. And so they're very much in the aerobic realm. And so we can, we can train, we, we know how to train that system really well. But interestingly enough, and again, the part that people don't grasp is that that's the same system that the 1500 meter or the mile runner is relying on too. He has to have some additional components to his training that let's say an ultra runner doesn't have because speed becomes a big factor in running a mile. But the the basic aerobic component and the way you train it is extremely close, closely linked. So we can take those universally applied principles that are very well understood in conventional sports and we can apply them to these unconventional activities that whether you want to call them a sport or not, you know, whether it's mountain running or ski mountaineering in particular, that's what this book focused on or alpinism in our previous book. But all we've done, we haven't invented anything here. All we've done is applied conventional sport methodology to these unconventional sports. And then what about the roles that the researchers take? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I, I got a little – I started down one of my rabbit holes there. So um, so the, the difference – so the, the, what I've seen over decades now, and I read a lot of scientific studies and literature because I think it, it is – and it's important for coaches to have a, an understanding of the science behind what they're doing because I think it helps us to have this sort of intellectual framework with which we can extrapolate and make new ideas from. Um, but what I normally see is that the coaches come up with some training protocol that works quite well. And then at some later time, some sports science person will do a study that will help elucidate why that training intervention or training protocol worked the way it did or why how it works compared to another type of training protocol um, but the the challenge that the sports scientists face and they don't have these millions of guinea pigs and thousands and thousands of coaches they aren't using a stopwatch they're not on a running track or a race course to measure all this stuff what they'll have to do is they got to find the guinea pigs and oftentimes they're limited to recreational or not even trained college students because many of these places are associated with universities. So they pay 50 bucks to some reasonably healthy 20-year-old to come into the lab and conduct these tests. So it's not necessarily representative of the same population that would be using these kinds of training. You know, serious athletes would be using these things that are well-trained already. Another complication for them is the duration of the studies. You know, they're, it's hard to find people that are willing to take part in a study for many weeks. So a lot of these studies are four to eight weeks at the most. 
some some a bit longer, but generally they're they're fairly short duration, which is that's not the way an athlete trains. An athlete trains months and months on end. Um, so you have this first year population is a little different. And one of the reasons the population is different, it's very hard to find high level athletes that want to be involved in training studies because they already have something that works for them. Why do they want to give that up and take part in some study that they have no idea what what the outcome will be? So you have the population problem, then you have the duration of the study problem, and then thirdly is more of a methodological issue, and that is that generally what these physiologists want to do is they want to distill these studies down to say, if we do X, will Y happen? And so they need to look at usually only a tiny handful of metrics that they can measure in a laboratory so they can compare the results before the test to after the, the this training protocol intervention or whatever you want to call it was done. And so they'll choose a few rather simple things that they can measure. But they're generally not measuring an improvement in performance. That does happen in some studies, but most of the time it isn't. They generally use uh, one of the most popular metrics is a thing called the max VO2, the maximum aerobic power that a person can generate. And as a consequence, that concept of max VO2 has been come has come to be uh, elevated to a position of kind of unwarranted importance in endurance training. It's sort of can, a lot of people can, you know, the lay public especially consider it sort of the gold standard. What's your max VO2? Well, that's going to be like the ticket to good race results. And the reason that these, these uh, researchers use max VO2 is that it's a very rather simple thing to test and they can compare it from study to study. And so it's a universal thing. They're not comparing, let's say, five kilometer time trials, running mm-hmm. time trials. And so you have these pretty significant issues that affect the applicability of these studies. Now, these studies are still fine studies and they work and they demonstrate these things. I'm not saying they're not valid, but it's often very difficult to make generalizations that come out of these rather restricted studies because of these reasons I've just laid out to make general um, prescriptions to how you should train your athlete, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, so the specificity is is high, but the external validity is uh, pretty, pretty low. Exactly. I mean, what we as coaches are looking for is we want to make the athlete faster. And that's the whole goal of all this training for our competitive athletes, especially and even for the non-competitive ones. They want to be able to run the Wonderland Trail around Mount Rainier faster than their friends did it or whatever. And so we're trying to improve the actual performance in the field of the athlete. That's the coach's job. Whereas the, the scientist is trying to isolate some very narrow metrics and um, parameters that it can he can measure and whether and how those translate to performance is not always completely clear coming up scott will give us advice on how to get faster and how to get fat adapted he'll also give me some advice about the things i'm doing wrong in my quest to qualify for the boston marathon but first, a word from our sponsor, Saks Underwear. Saks Underwear has all the bells and whistles for your bells and whistle. 
Let's start with the highly breathable, moisture-wicking fabrics, which are different depending on what collection you choose. The Kinetic line is this stretch micro-mesh fabric that's built for high-output activities. Or the Platinum line is this outrageously soft, premium modal fabric. You've never felt underwear like this before. There's also the Ballpark Pouch. That's the internal mesh panels that hold everything in place. You could say, they keep your bells from ringing. I want you to try Saks Underwear, so we've arranged a limited time deal for you. It's $5 off, plus free shipping on your first purchase. And if you want some advice on which pairs to buy, just email me. To get the deal, go to saxunderwear.com. That's S-A-X-X underwear.com and use the promo code MEISTER at checkout. Well, let me selfishly ask you a couple of questions about how I can get faster um, because I've uh, become a little obsessed with trying to qualify for the Boston Marathon over the past few years and uh, have slowly knocked off some minutes from my marathon time. Uh, but now that the qualifying standard is three hours for men of my age, uh, I'm, I need to get even faster. <laughs> so uh, I've been pushing distances uh, for about five years. So before before five years ago, I was mostly doing 5Ks. Uh, and I started running marathons about five years ago. Um, to give you a good idea of like how my training plan works is I often run into one online that's called the Boston Marathon Just Enough Plan. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, that, one, right. that one seems to speak to me most. I just want to do just enough to qualify. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. it hasn't been enough yet. Um, so f my first question, I guess, is you mentioned uh, moving efficiently is very important in the book. And I've heard about like pose form or other uh, kinds of running. Do you recommend that uh, somebody like me who needs to shave uh, about 10 minutes off of his fastest marathon time to change my form or do I kind of make smaller tweaks? Yes. So whatever uh, we're dealing with an athlete, the thing we want to look at first is what's the lowest hanging fruit for this athlete? Mm -hmm. Um, because those are the things we can most easily affect and those effects are likely to be the biggest. And so we're going to get the biggest bang for the training buck spent. And you know, if you've got a decent running base behind you now after five years and you're comfortably putting in consistent mileage in your weeks, um, then yes, looking at economy, what's what the efficiency and economy are, are not in the technical sense, not exactly the same. You can think of economy, running economy or movement economy as very much like the fuel economy in your car. How much energy does it cost you to run at a certain pace and in your case you want to know what it cost how much energy it costs you to run at a three-hour marathon pace and if you can improve that then you're going to spend less energy which means you're good and by spending less energy doing it you're going to have more energy in reserve to run faster so improving economy is a really critical component of being able to run faster. And if you watch good runners run, and of course there's, YouTube is full of examples of this. I mean, I, I think you, can, you can't do much better than watching some of the top Kenyan runners um, and watch how they run. You'll see 
this is about the optimal econ economic way to run. And they've either, you know, if they haven't been trained, they've been they've developed this through you know years of exposure to it, watching other people doing it, or they're just predisposed to running that way. But what what I've noticed, and I've not just noticed, but many studies have shown that the the difference in running economy can be well into the double digits in terms of energy cost. So you might be spending 20% more energy than that guy running next mm -hmm. to you. So that means you've got to be 20% fitter than he is uh, in order to be competitive with him. So this is an area for a lot of people, especially if they don't have a lifetime of running background or they're not well-versed in good running technique where they can make huge strides. That's, a, that's a kind of a pun there, I guess, but, um, but they can make huge gains in running speed with only technical changes. So I would recommend and if you are, don't feel like you are, if you don't run like Iliad Kipchoge right now, you should start trying to learn to run like Iliad Kipchoge. <laughs> All right. That sounds like a time investment. I don't yeah. know. Well, it is a time for sure. It's a time investment. I'm but on you're the gonna just be out there. Plan, though, Scott. <laughs> but you you're gonna you're out there running almost daily yeah. anyway, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you need to think about how you're running, not just mm -hmm. plodding along and putting in the miles. That's certainly a, a component. But the way we learn movement patterns is through repetition. I mean, if you've ever learned to play a musical instrument, you know the way you learned to play that musical instrument was by practicing, and you had to practice doing it right over and over and over again, thousands of times before you got to where you could play, you know, little Bo Peep. Um, so it's exactly the same thing when you're trying to learn to run is if, if all you do is go out the door and just run without any thought process, you're going to get really good at doing it wrong. And that, that was, that movement pattern is going to get hardwired into your nervous system. And that's the way you're going to run. So to break that habit and to learn better movement skills, what it requires is, yeah, you have to be thoughtful. You have to think about how you're landing on your feet. You have to think about where the foot strike is, all of those kinds of things, because the only way you're going to get better at it is to practice it perfectly thousands and thousands of times. But you are already making thousands of foot strikes every week. So why not make those thousands of foot strikes good foot strikes instead of just, you know, clomping around out there? So, so there's, you know, there, um, I would say, yes, you should consider that as a significant way to shave some okay. of this time off. Another issue that I have is that I know I need to eat during my race and probably eat more than I have in my previous races, but, uh, I tend to slow down when I have to, you know, I'm already pushing myself really, really hard. And so to try to eat while doing that, my pace tends to slow down. How do you, like, what kind of strategy can I utilize there? What are you eating? Like a steak or a peanut butter sandwich? I mean, I why love, do you have to slow down? Because I, my, I, I'm already at like a, a fast breathing pace. So when I'm putting like the goo or whatever in my mouth, uh, I can't breathe as efficiently. Okay. So you, first of all, you're you're running too hard. Uh, well, I need to get in better shape then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. So the the marathon event mm -hmm. is, by definition, for anyone who's running it at their competitive limit, should be an event that's competed at the aerobic threshold. 
And if you watch Iliad Kipchoge or any other world-class marathoner, you'll notice how relaxed and comfortable they look and how they're not gasping and breathing hard. And that's not because they're not running harder than you are. In fact, you're probably running harder than they are, which is one of the reasons you have to eat. They don't eat in their race. Mm. The reason they're not eating is they're very well fat adapted. Fat adaptation, we spend quite a bit of time talking about it in the book, and there's a lot of information on our website. But your body has essentially two metabolic pathways that it uses for endurance sports. There's a, there are, there's a third metabolic pathway, but it's insignificant. It, only, it might be useful in sprints or jumping and that sort of thing, but it's not important for us in these events that are longer than two minutes. And one of those is a process that is fueled almost entirely by glycogen. That's the sugars that are stored in your body that come from breaking down carbohydrates. The other process, that process proceeds anaerobically, meaning without any oxygen, that, that glycolytic metabolic process. The other metabolic process that's purely aerobic predominantly breaks down fat and turns that fat into energy. So we have these two metabolic pathways, and people who are poorly fat adapted, their metabolic default is to burn sugars. And because of our modern diets and lifestyles, many people, because carbohydrates are yummy and they're cheap, uh, easily accessible, and you know we've we've grown up in a culture where they are you know in these wonderful packages. We open a box of crackers and eat them, and they taste great. We've all we, we have a tendency to be predisposed towards that glycolytic. You know, if you eat a lot of carbohydrates, your body will say, "Oh, I've got to be get really good at breaking down carbohydrates." So I'm going to supercharge that glycolytic metabolic pathway by increasing these enzymes that break down carbohydrates and sugars into fuel. If, on the other hand, you are restricting your carbohydrate intake during training. Then your body is going to say, whoa, I need fuel from something, and it's going to get really good at breaking down fat. And you can't you – know, so when you say that you have to eat like this, what it tells me is that you are predominantly fueling yourself with carbohydrates. So does that races, mean that which is, could I uh, fuel with carbohydrates during the race and that be sufficient? Yes, it, it should be. What we normally – suggest to people in a is that you train on fat you race on carbs mm, okay. because then you're not going to be so carbohydrate reliant so you're going to be able to operate at higher and higher intensities with just fat for fuel or predominantly for fuel not just because you're always burning some carbohydrates with the fat and um but you can you can shift your metabolic system so that it will be using more fat and less carbohydrate for any given intensity you're running at. And it's fine in a 5K or a 10K where the pace is well above excuse me, well above the aerobic threshold and you do have to rely upon a lot on the glycolytic metabolic process that's breaking down of the sugars. And you have ample stores of those sh sugars to last you less than an hour, you know, half an hour to an hour is there's no problem in in doing that. But when you get into events that last several hours, then fuel storage becomes a significant issue. And if you've ever bonked in a marathon or ever run out of energy, then you know what I'm talking about, that when that glycogen level goes, when you run out, then you will be forced to slow dramatically. 
because there's no more glycogen to be used and you're going to shift entirely to fat. And as a consequence, you'll slow a lot. So we have a well-trained endurance athlete has 100,000 calories stored in fat, even a super lean marathon runner. Whereas a well-trained endurance athlete will never have more than about 1,500 calories of glycogen stored on board. So you've got this one giant fuel tank and you've got this one, that, that glycogen is very high octane stuff, but it's a very small supply of it. So what we want to train these, especially in these long distance endurance events, events that last more than a couple of hours, is that we want to, you're going to be able to guzzle from that fat fuel tank because this supply is quite large and you want to only be sipping from the glycogen fuel tank during the course of the race. And it sounds like in your case, you're guzzling from the glycogen gas tank. This, yeah, this and is making total sense. Yeah, and there's there's a number of ways that we can you can test for this, and we talk about them in the book about how you can decide if you are you know predisposed towards fat or predisposed towards glycogen. I mean, I've tested a lot of people who are so glycogen dependent. I mean, they just don't burn any fat. I mean, it's almost impossible for them to produce to burn much fat because they're they've conditioned their process their their muscles to rely on this steady influx of glycogen. So if you're the kind of person that during training is is eating a goo an hour or you know or an energy bar every hour, then all you're doing is reinforcing this mm-hmm. metabolic pathway because your body's saying, "Okay, I can just take on more, you know, whenever I need energy, you're just going to give me another slug of sugar and I'll be fine." But in the in doing so, that detrains your body's ability to break down fat for fuel. Wow. Okay, so uh, changing up my diet uh, into more fat-rich foods versus carbohydrate-rich foods. Exactly. Doing some of your workouts early in the day in a fasted state, some of these longer, easy runs should be you – you can jumpstart that process by doing them in a fasted state because you're going to start the run. You, know, you have, won't have eaten since dinner the night before, so you're going to start the run already slightly glycogen depleted. So during the run, it's much more likely that you're going to run low on glycogen, and that's going to trigger the fat, the enzymes that break down fat to get better at their job. You'll produce more of them, and you'll become a more efficient fat burner. That's another way. So altering your diet will definitely help by reducing the number of carbohydrates. Not fueling during your runs will help. Um, but as I said, you want we want to train to become better fat burning machines, but during an important event, it's still important to be taking on those carbohydrates. Yeah. They, they play a crucial role. My, uh, my last, uh, solicitation of advice is that, uh, my last race, which I PR'd in, I also had to go to the bathroom twice to a Porter John. So this hurts okay. me, uh, being uncomfortable Huge. beforehand, yeah. but then also just the time that it takes to go. So what do I sure. do about that? Well, um, that sounds like a dietary issue to me. Um, I mean, chances are, you know, people you know, go to the bathroom at different times during the day. But, you know, if you can, ideally, you'd like to so, not eat a huge meal before your race. Certainly the races are at the, the worst time of day for me. You know, I mean, like they're, always, is, in the mor- they're always in the morning. I uh, mm. If I have a cup of coffee or like my schedule is such that like I normally go to the ba- like uh, go to the bathroom in the morning. 
So the mm-hmm. fact that the race falls there doesn't help. Plus, you're like a little yeah. nervous before the race, so you don't end up going before the race. It's like hard to squeeze one out. Yeah, no, it definitely is a problem for people. Um, I would say that. I mean, you're, are you eating a big meal before the race too? That might have something uh, to do with. I, I wouldn't say I overeat before the race. Okay. I mean, normally, once the race starts, your gut shuts down. So anything you've put in your stomach, you know, it's not a super easily absorbable. Uh, anything that has to go through the intestines mm-hmm. to be absorbed is not going to do you much good. So if you ate, you know, bacon and eggs or pancakes for breakfast, most of that's not going to do you much good. It's just going to sit there heavily okay. because it's not your, your gut's sort of shutting down during this time. What, one of the things that makes most of these energy drinks and gels easily absorbed is that they're such simple sugars, they break down immediately and they some of them can be absorbed right through the stomach wall or in the duodenum, which is right after the stomach. So they get absorbed really quickly. But with your particular case, I don't know that I have a great answer for it other than getting up earlier, mm, especially yeah. maybe the, 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 the week before the race, start conditioning yourself to get up earlier and have that coffee earlier and get your system cleaned out before you go for a run mm-hmm. in the morning. Um, yeah, normally the conditions that I've had to deal with with athletes are in ultra runs where their, their, their body gets so screwed up that they just can't eat stuff during the race. You know, they, they throw up or have diarrhea and that's a big problem for a lot of ultra distance events. But normally, I mean, it also could be that you're eating, I mean, it depends on maybe if you eat a, a higher fiber meal the day or so the before. before. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, that would help, you know, go through your system faster. Um, well, yeah, that's, I, I guess I'm afraid I can't be much more specific. No, this has all been really useful advice coming from a top-level trainer, uh, and I'm getting it for free, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have two more questions. We ask these uh, to all of our guests. The first one is that uh, we get a gear recommendation from our guests. I'm wondering if you uh, have anything that you've uh, really enjoyed lately, any unique pieces of gear that you'd recommend? Well, that's, uh, no, because I'm a really, I'm really simple when it comes to gear. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a, I'm not a gear guy. Uh, I, one of the things that we do, all the athletes we coach, which are dozens and you know, we have eight coaches coaching well over a hundred athletes, um, is that we, and we talk about this in the book, we, well, we won't coach anybody that isn't using a heart rate monitor GPS watch. And, uh, I think that if you are wanting to track what you're doing and control your training, there's no simpler and, the, and you're a runner or ski mountaineer type person, which is really where this the, the sports that these book this book was oriented toward. Having a way to quantify what you're doing is really important, rather than just always winging it. And because we coach virtually all of our athletes remotely, we, we use an online platform called Training Peaks. You may be familiar with it. Some of your listeners might. It's a, uh, an incredibly powerful tool for coaches and athletes to communicate with one another. The coach can put the workouts into the athlete's calendar. 
the, when the athlete gets done, they upload all of the data that hmm. gets dumped out of their watch and GPS. So that I can see how many vertical feet they did. I can see vertical oscillation. I can see running speed and average heart rates. I can see all this data co- collected in there. And then I can choose how to manipulate that data so I can watch what the, what the athletes – I can see these – this objective data, but then there's also a section for each workout where the athlete comments on what their perceived exertion was, how, you know, how they felt, how good was this workout, how tired are they, any other, you know, any lingering injuries or something they're de- that they're dealing with. And we can then as coaches remotely, we can take that hard data and this uh, perception, softer perceived data together and make recommended changes or adjustments as we go forward. How cool! What, and is, so, what is that called again? Training peaks. Training peaks. Um, training peaks. Yeah, and it's a, it's an incredibly powerful um, <clears throat> training tool. We pay quite a premium to them every month to use that service. It's not something we're not affiliated with them. As I say, we pay quite a fee to them to do it, but we feel like it's vital. Now, athletes can do this for themselves. They don't need to use a. Um, they don't have to have a coach to be using Training Peaks. You can be self-coached. Um, we, we sell a number of training plans on our website and all of those plans go through training peaks so that the only way you can actually access our training plans is by having a training peaks account and it, through it, you will upload all your data into these workouts. So it's a great educational tool. It's really the only way I think you can remotely coach people effectively. Um, so I, if I have a, a gear recommendation, it would probably be that and having a good heart rate monitor GPS type watch that, that you can upload and, and not one, by the way, that uses a wrist based heart rate monitor because they don't work. Oh, you, if you want to collect heart rate data, it has to be collected with a chest strap. The technology with these wrist based monitors is just not adequate yet. I work with many athletes that are sponsored by the various heart rate monitoring companies, and they'll get the latest, fanciest, greatest tools to use, and none of them. I don't care if it's an $800 Garmin. It, the heart rate, the wrist heart rate monitor does not work. So it's fine if you have a Fitbit and you want to count steps or you want to see what your resting pulse is and that sort of thing. But if you're a serious athlete that's training you can't use a wrist-based heart rate monitor of any type. It has to have a chest strap. Very interesting. Uh, we'll have uh, those links on your profile on our site. Uh, the last question okay. of uh, mm-hmm. today's interview is who would you like to hear next on the show? So you're, you're today's Mountain Meister. Who's our next one? Oh, golly. Um, have you interviewed Luke Nelson? No, I uh, have not. Tell us about Luke. Uh, yeah, I think it, So Luke is... Uh, an interesting guy, he's an ultra runner, uh, former, used to do a lot of ski mountaineering races, um, was a member of the U.S. team when he was doing that. He is also a physician's assistant uh, to a spine surgeon, so he works a, a very rugged job and has a family, but still manages to train at an extremely high level. Um, Luke was eighth place this past September in the um, Tour de Géant, which is one of the most challenging ultra mountain marathons in the world. It's uh, 330 kilometers with over 100,000 vertical feet in it. And um, he placed eighth, and he did that on a training average mileage over nine months was 43 miles a week. 
Wow. And which isn't very much for a guy that's going to have to run 330 kilometers. Um, And we did that with some special type training workouts that we could fit into his uh, schedule. And he has a huge history of events like that that he's done. And he's got a lot of the fastest known times for various um, mountain running things in the in the US and around the world. So and he's a, a very articulate guy and super nice. Wow, Luke sounds like a great fit for the show. That's amazing. He's running the about the same number of miles per week as me, uh, but I'm reasonably <laughs> certain that I wouldn't be able to finish that race. <laughs> yeah, he's you know, he's been at this a long time. He's yeah. no newcomer to it. But um, but yeah, I would recommend um, a discussion with with Luke would be a fun thing for people to hear. Great. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us, Scott. Keep an ear out for Luke on a future episode of Mountain Meister. Uh, you can find out more about Uphill Athlete at UphillAthlete.com. The book is called Training for the Uphill Athlete. It's available on Amazon, on Patagonia. We'll have uh, those links on our website, MTNMeister.com. Scott Johnson, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much, Ben. Good talking to you. More information on our website, mtnmeister.com. If you'd like to hear my interview with Steve House, who is Scott's co-owner and co-author, that's just a few episodes back in the archive, and it's one of our more popular episodes. Next up on the show is our company spotlight segment. In our company spotlights, we feature lesser-known outdoor brands in a brief interview, and then we review a couple of their products. Companies are not allowed to pay to be featured on this segment. They only need to provide us gear for the review. In return, we can be completely honest with you about what we think about the products and not feel like we owe anything to the brand. Today's brand is Reggie. It's a Canadian cycling apparel company founded by siblings Laura and Jeff Wills, also known as the Wills Kids. Well, when we first started this, Jeff's brief to me when he was, he told me that he wanted to have uh, his own jersey for him and his buddies to wear riding. He said, just make us look cool, make us look fast and make us look different from anyone else. And those are still kind of the guiding um, principles for everything that we design. Um, it's totally collaborative process. We talk about like our concepts together, but once we get going, once I get going, um, we, I kind of have a palette of uh, 18 colors. They're, they're, our, our designs are really bright and um, very graphic based. And we kind of have, you know, three different inspiration sets that we've always uh, looked to um, for the designs. One is, you know, the history of vintage cycling jerseys and, and all of the, the colors and the shapes and the different typography, all of that kind of stuff. We love those. Um, mid-century modern and just the, the, the different shape and, and color work that was really prevalent in like the 50s, 60s, 70s. That's a big inspiration for me. And then both of us are really inspired by streetwear culture and just like the the mashups and like the craziness a little bit. So the thing about our designs is that they're um, they're fun. They're really bold. They're a bit irreverent. And the idea is when you're out on the road or you're at a race, you can see a Reggie rider coming from a mile away. Like these, they stand out. Yeah, like the mishmash, there's one uh, that's a camo jersey with just like this incredibly vibrant design going through the camo. Uh, I think that's, that one's a good example. 
Yeah, exactly. That I think that the one that you're referring to is the double cross jersey, and so we launched that for the cyclocross season last fall, and uh, and we, and we had a team of Reggie riders who had a, a variation of of that that was all pink, and when you go to the races, people talk about it. They're like, oh, you can see those Reggie riders coming. Like it's 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 really they're fun and they're cool and they make people smile. Like they're kind of outrageous and also safer on the road because uh, you're a little bit brighter. You stick out, uh, Jeff. What what kind of rider wears Reggie besides you? So Reggie is for basically anybody that likes to ride their bikes. Um, you know, obviously they need to be serious enough that they think they need a nice jersey and shorts and so on. But we don't, we're not, you know, road only uh, like a lot of brands are. Um, I equally ride road bikes, mountain bikes. I ride a fat bike. I ride year round in the snow uh, gravel bike, everything. So, uh, the first race that I wore Reggie Jersey in was a qualifier for Leadville. And then I wore the exact same Jersey at Leadville again, a couple of years later, you'll see it in all types of, uh, events and all types of rides. And it's really made for anybody that, you know, wants to go good on their bike. Do you have any, uh, fun comments that you've received wearing, uh, Reggie? I think the one thing that you see almost every single time you show up at a ride, and it's not just me when I show up, but it's anybody. When somebody rolls up to a ride in their Reggie gear, everybody just kind of gets this grin on their face. It's like, oh, yeah, here's this, per- here's whoever it is showing up in their Reggie gear. They look different from everybody else, but they still look super pro, you know, because they're all put together mm-hmm. and classy, but not in that sort of what's kind of stereotypical now, navy blue jersey with black shorts and Mm -hmm. crazy socks. Um, The whole outfit all goes together, but it's very unique and very different and bold as well. So, you know, that's sort of the reaction you always get. But the one I will say that was super fun for me, it's not so much a comment, but it ties back to what Laura was talking about. When I raced at Leadville last year, uh, I was wearing the original classy camo jersey, which is the green camo with the big pink Reggie across the chest. And it didn't matter where I was on the course. People were screaming, go Reggie, the entire uh, <laughs> event. They didn't know who I was. My name's not even Reggie, but they could see the Reggie coming down the road or the trail or whatever. And I was pretty, it was pretty awesome uh, for me and my friend who was also wearing Reggie at Leadville to uh, get that uh, kind of support just because of what we were wearing. Okay, well then I have to ask, and everybody's wondering, where did the name come from? So that's my thing. Uh, growing up as a kid, I was a big baseball fan, and Reggie Jackson was sort of my hero as a baseball player back in the 70s. And um, I've just always loved the word. So I, I, you know, I'm not necessarily a huge baseball fan anymore, but I love the name. I love just the word, the sound of it. And whenever you say it, you know, you don't even have to know a Reggie. Um, but it's just sort of that fun thing when, when you say it. And to be honest, now I know a lot of Reggies because of the, <laughs> the gear that we make all over the world. I know Reggies now and they're all awesome guys. Uh, I even know a Reggie who's a, a local Reggie here who's a woman. And they're all just phenomenal people. And, uh, you know, you're not made by your name necessarily, but certainly that sort of word uh, plays well with uh, what we're trying to come across with as a brand. Well, it forces you to smile when you say the word. When you say Reggie, you smile, which uh, I'm not sure if there's any causal nature to that um, in that everybody 
that's named Reggie you like because they're smiling and they've uh, they've just been doing that their whole life, so they're naturally likable. Uh, Laura, I'm wondering how you play off of that in uh, in your designs. Like, how do you uh, incorporate Reggie beyond just putting the name on the jersey? Well, so some of the designs are really re- irreverent, but we also um, hide like little fun sayings on a lot of the pieces, like some of the bottoms of the socks. When you look at the sole of your feet, it'll say, you know, go full, gla- full gas or or punch it or um, there'll be a message down the side of, of a jersey. And so so that's part of it is that we have um, fun kind of, you know, little inspirational messages like the the um, arm warmers um, say punch it on the sleeves um, or commit, don't quit. It's, it's also for the rider. Like we're just encouraging people to get out there and ride as hard as they can. But the other thing with the name Reggie, um, just from a typographic standpoint and, uh, some of the Jersey designs is that I don't, I often, um, switch up my typography treatment so that the word Reggie keeps changing. It shifts. So we have, you know, that we have a script that's sort of like our classic Reggie logo. Um, but you'll see the word Reggie kind of morph, um, as you look through the series, which is, which is a fun thing to do. And it adds some more character and, um, people can identify with, with different designs that they like the best based on that as part of the decision. That's great. Okay. So we're hooking up our listeners with a discount in association with this episode. Uh, Jeff, can you talk about what that discount's going to be? Yeah, we want lots of people to have fun on their bikes. So if you go to reggie.bike and use the um, discount code that Ben will give you, you'll get 25% off your first purchase on the website. That's a great deal. 25% off is one of the larger discounts that we've received on a company spotlight for uh, technical riding gear. So thank you for that. That's 25% off reggie.bike. And the promo code is Regimeister, R-E-G-G-I-E-M-E-I-S-T-E-R, which will be in the show notes of today's episode in case you forget. And also, you generally just should probably look at the colors and the designs that Reggie uses. So, uh, Laura and Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been lovely talking to you. You too. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Ben. That's 25% off with Reggie Meister at checkout at Reggie.bike. But before you use it, what did Hannah Van Wetter and I think of the products when we tried them? Here's Hannah. I took my Reggie kit for a spin, my first road bike ride of the season here in Bozeman, Montana, from um, my house to Highlight Lake, which is a, a road that they close in the spring for plowing purposes and recreation purposes. So it's a great nine mile climb up to a reservoir. Uh, and then a super fun descent without any cars on it. It was about a, a 40 mile bike ride total. And it was my first time on, on the road bike in the spring or I guess all year. So Hannah, you and I tried out the double cross Jersey and the double cross bibs. Uh, you also tried out the long sleeve double cross, which is more of like a, a fleece long sleeve cycling Jersey. Uh, what did you think? That's correct. Yeah. I've been a pair of, uh, socks as well oh yeah Um, i i loved the bibs i actually took them for a road bike ride in the morning and then a mountain bike ride the same day in the afternoon so i was pleasantly surprised with the bibs thought they were comfortable thought they were cool looking thought they fit well um the jersey was the fast fit i believe they have a an option of a fast and a faster i think interesting fast which would be a little less 
form fitting and it was comfortable. The material is super lightweight, super comfortable. I was finding it riding up on my stomach. Um, sort of like being on the bike. That was my one complaint with it. The, the long sleeve Jersey is awesome. It's a sort of thicker fleece material, same pattern wore it the whole time on the bike ride. So it was a little chilly and, uh, yeah, I felt like that was almost the best addition to my kit. So what did you think about the sleeves on the shorter, on the short sleeve Jersey? So when I first put them on, I was like, wow, these are tight and thin and really tight. But then riding, they didn't bother me. They stayed in place, which was nice. I find a lot of like women's shirts sort of end up riding up into your armpits Mm -hmm. and they do that. Um, they kind of have the, uh, same fit on the sleeves of the Jersey as they do on the thighs of the shorts. Mm -hmm. So it's not like an overly tight band, but it's sort of a, an elongated sleeve that was comfortable. didn't ride up. And yeah, I, I I was pleasantly surprised when I first put it on my house, I was feeling a little bit constricted by the sleeves. So I almost had the same, I didn't quite feel constricted, but I was just like, well, these sleeves are kind of longer than a typical cycling jersey and right. I thought that I wasn't gonna like that uh but when I rode I actually really liked it uh it kind of keeps the sleeves uh in uh, like locked onto your arm because they go past the bicep so it goes to like the th- the more narrow part of your arm and then it doesn't slide up your bicep whereas if it's if you take off this extra maybe inch and a half to two inches of material then you're at the widest part of your bicep and then the sleeves end up bunching after that the one complaint that i have with the jersey from a women's perspective and you probably saw this too with the bibs is that it's incredibly see-through oh yeah i did see that with the bibs yes yeah you're right it is you can see see the straps of the bibs but you can also see like the writing on my sports bra Uh, Uh, which was fine because i had the long sleeve jersey over it but i think it would, it's just a, it's a kind of an exposing factor. That's a really good point. I did notice that I could see through the jersey to the uh, the straps from the bibs. The fabric itself is very comfortable and breathable. Liked that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the colors, of course, are just totally wild. Uh, definitely would not recommend this for a first timer, but, uh, if you know what you're doing on the, on the bike, then, uh, yeah, you'll stick out in a good way. There's a cool waterproof zippered pocket yes. on the back of the Jersey, which is a nice factor. Cause otherwise it's very just sort of sheer. Um, so it is nice to have that option for, you know, some money or cell phone or anything. You don't want to get wet if you get stuck out in the rain. And it has a reflective, uh, strip on it. I don't know if you noticed that. Yeah. Um, okay, so the short sleeve jersey retails for one hundred twenty three dollars. Uh, the bibs retail for one hundred forty six dollars. Uh, Hannah, would you buy this with your own money? I think I would buy the bibs if they were on sale. Um, I recently have a, a small cyclocross career, and I'm really which starts in the fall. I'm really excited to rock this kit for that so i think i would buy the bibs they were on sale i don't think i would buy the jersey ben would you buy it i think that i would buy it uh but as a gift for somebody so i wouldn't i wouldn't buy it for myself but i would buy it uh for somebody else between like the the bright colors and then 
uh, that sometimes the phrases on the fun or sorry, the phrases on the side are fun. I'm, I'm not necessarily into that for myself, but other people like it. Um, and it's a really like top notch quality Jersey. So it's not like you're getting somebody, something that's like really bright, but that they'll never really use. Like I, I totally see people using this. Uh, but yes, so I would, I would buy it with my own money, but for somebody else, not myself. The other thing that I really liked about Reggie as a brand is their packaging was phenomenal. Mm. Every piece of clothing came in this cool little mesh bag. Um, they had a neat kind of tissue paper. They had a postcard in there. Um, we got the complimentary, um, cowbell, which was kind of a fun addition to have, um, and it was like the, the little bags are really cool. I found myself like packing. If I go for a weekend, I'll put like underwear or socks in them. So they've had sort of additional uses. Um, and it just made like getting the actual package super exciting. Did you get one of those uh, ass savers? Yeah, that I would buy with my own money. I actually really like that ass saver. I don't know if they sell that or not, do they? It's $8. They say this ass saver is rated RG. Their discussion for this design went something like, how many ways can you use the word ass on a single piece of cycling gear? <laughs> now you can measure your fun on the bike while saving your ass. No brainer. That's awesome for cyclocross too. Oh, yeah. Okay, so really quickly, the ass saver is just like this uh, like piece of plastic that fits in uh, underneath your seat, and it's basically a fender that's just really close to your seat on your ass. Uh, rather than being so close to the tire and like if you get some unexpected rain or something like that uh the things there and like you never have to take it off your bike it just kind of like sits there like a little tail underneath your seat yeah i would definitely buy the ass saver with my own money For sure okay yeah i mean that's that's worth it on its own cool good call hannah i forgot about cool. that 25% off with Reggie Meister at reggie.bike if you're interested. Also, if you're looking for other outdoor gear, check out The Nomadic. It's an outdoor subscription box that helps you discover the hottest brands and freshly launched gear. They deliver monthly themed boxes with innovative products, an outdoor challenge, and up to two times the retail value compared to what you would have paid. Learn more at thenomadic.com meister. That's all for today's episode of Mountain Meister. Hope you enjoyed. We're going to have new episodes once a month this whole summer. Really excited about some of the guests that we'll have. As always, feel free to shoot me an email if you want to get in touch. It's ben at mtnmeister.com. Till next time, I hope you enjoy doing the rest of whatever else you do when you listen to this podcast. I'm your host, Ben Shank. Thanks for listening to Mountain Meister. <laughs>